Welcome to the Covenant People's Ministry. Jesus once told Satan that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. We invite you to study the scriptures with us to learn about the words of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our pastor is Mr. Jeremy Visser from Brooks, Georgia. You can contact us with your questions and comments at covenantpeoplesministry.org or simply write to Covenant People's Ministry, Post Office Box 256, Brooks, Georgia 30205. If you desire, you can also follow us on YouTube and Twitter. We would like to hear from you, and we pray in the name of Jesus Christ that His will will continue to reign upon us all. Once again, welcome to the Covenant People's Ministry, and here is Pastor Visser with our next Bible study. Hello, dear kinsfolk. This is Pastor Visser from Covenant People's Ministry and Church, located in the heart of the Dirty South, which is Brooks, Georgia. And I'm pleased to announce that last week, September 21st, we recently finished and concluded our 76-part study into the Gospel of St. Luke. Indeed, we began this series on January 1st, that is New Year's Day, looking into the birth of Jesus Christ, and for the better part of a year, we've been studying into His teachings and His life. And we recently concluded, finally, with His ascension and His final teachings. Now, all 76 segments, if you were to download them at our webpage at covenantpeoplesministry.org, would comprise 695 megabytes, meaning you could burn this perfectly onto your standard average compact disc, give it away freely, keep it in your car, keep it for further study. So what it is that you are about to hear in this particular two-part series are the needless outtakes from that same series. Part one, ranging from January 2014 to approximately mid-May. And part two, ranging from mid-May all the way up to the end of September and our current time now. So this is the needless material, the cutting room floor segments, if you will, that didn't make the final take because they were deemed either too needless, too hardcore, too weakly preached, or simply just too lame to be included in the final cut. At 76 segments, the Gospel of Luke totals 52 hours and 21 minutes. Meaning that an average Adamite within an average work week can conclude the entire series, the Gospel of St. Luke, in that amount of time. One average work week with overtime, albeit, but that is the curse of Adam. So, most of this material is needless. Lots of it is bloopers. Some of them were mispronounced. And most of it was preached much better at a later date. And those would be the segments you heard in the Gospel of St. Luke, parts 1 through 76. But nonetheless, this material does have some merit. For example, track number 23, which is an 18-minute mini-sermon titled, Suffer the Little Children, Part 2. I preached it around mid-July of this year, 2014. And actually, as this series will be cut into two segments... It will be featured at the end of part one and the beginning of part two. So stay tuned for that. 
So here it is, dear kinsfolk, without further ado, the material and the leftover garbage from the gospel, according to St. Luke. For whatever you choose to do with it, have a few laughs, I know we did. Disregard it, it doesn't really matter to us. But perhaps you will find little pearls of wisdom in this two-part series, Luke Bloops. So without further ado, listen for the foghorn that separates each specific track and have fun, dear kinsfolk. Until next time, this is Pastor Visser. Enjoy the broadcast. Baptized in, at least when pertaining to little children. But what he says is, you must receive the kingdom of God as a little child, or you will in no wise enter in. I'm reminded of wise King Solomon saying, Have faith and rejoice within the wife of your youth. Because what Christ is saying is, We must receive the kingdom of God as a little child, trusting that our Father knows what's best. And of course, one of the reasons Jesus Christ would do this is because everywhere he went, he was met with opposition. He had to deal with the Pharisees who said, well, Jesus Christ isn't the Redeemer. He isn't the Messiah. Had they not been so wrapped within their own tradition, they could have been like little children, faithful and obedient. But because they weren't, well, they can't enter in. Who? The Pharisees. Because they couldn't serve them. They couldn't obey them as little children could. Now, what Jesus is doing here is contrasting the difference between tradition and truth. The disciples assume because they were adults, well, adults talking, children go away. But that's not what Jesus Christ is saying. In fact, what Christ is saying is more in line with the Mosaic Law than what the Pharisees would do at the times of Christ. Because the Mosaic Law says we must raise and or train our children up in the right way so that when they're older they will not depart from it. But rather, it was pharisaical to be just like this, to say, well, children aren't welcome within this temple. Children do not have a voice. (laughs) When you, as a Christian, understand that we comprise Jesus' body, and that children also are part of that same said body of Christ, you will not be found like these unfaithful disciples here, saying that the children cannot come to Jesus Christ when Jesus Christ was created for children. How can I say that? For of such is the kingdom of God. Is the kingdom of God what? Comprised. The kingdom of God is comprised with obedient children. And we're not even discussing age here, but a mental state of being. Do not serve Yahweh as some evil deity. Do not serve Him under protest. Rather, serve Him obediently, knowing He as your Father has commanded what is best for you. And so... In verse 18 of St. Luke chapter 18, we're about to deal with the rich young ruler. And you may have heard me preach on this before many years ago because it's covered in Mark chapter 10 verse 17. It's also reiterated in the gospel according to St. Matthew chapter 19 verse 16. But in verse 18, Luke continues his account. And it says, And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Question. Now, before we continue, do you want to know what you must do to inherit eternal life? (laughs) 
Well, this is a question that you may be asked in your Christian walk at least more than one time. I know I have. Many people will come to you and say, well, do we have to follow the law of God to inherit eternal life? Do we need to rely only and solely upon the grace of Yahshua Messiah to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, as always, Yahshua Messiah is about to provide the answers here. Next verse. And Jesus said unto him, who, that rich young ruler, Why callest thou me good? None is good, save one, that is, God. Now, Jesus Christ had humility. He had meekness here. And he wasn't saying he wasn't good, per se. He was saying he wasn't good in contrast to Yahweh. Why? Because he was in the flesh. And anyone familiar with the Mosaic Law would know that. Anyone familiar with the prophecies laid down by Isaiah would know that Yahshua Messiah would be God manifest in the flesh. Naturally, it is the flesh that is the separator between man and Yahweh God. Therefore, Jesus Christ was not perfect, but the closest thing that a man could aspire to achieve down here on earth pertaining to perfection. So much so that he could say, there is none good. Why? That is the perfect answer for a humble man. You've heard me preach this time and time again. Beware of those who go around saying, I'm so great. I'm such a scholar. Rather, it is up to other men to say that of you. Not for you to go around reminding them. And so, Jesus Christ says right here, Why are you calling me good? There is no good other than Yahweh God. Perfect answer. Jesus Christ is not saying I'm evil, but rather in comparison, there is only one good. Let God be true and every man be a liar. Christ continues on after he sets that straight. First and foremost, don't call me good because only Yahweh God is. Then in verse 20, Yahshua continues, Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy mother and father. So what does Jesus Christ go back to when this rich young ruler asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, follow the law. More specifically, the Ten Commandments. So, why would that be? Well, naturally, the short answer would be this. Within the Ten Commandments is the whole of the law, meaning that any of these laws that Jesus Christ just laid down don't have to be listed as, for example, honor thy mother and father, that would be five, or thou shalt not adulterate, being number seven. Because the Ten Commandments encompass all 600 plus laws that were given down by Yahweh God on Mount Sinai. So, he says, You already know the commandments. You already know what you need to do to inherit eternal life. And here are a few of those things. Do not commit adultery and do not kill. Now, I want to digress here for just a moment and really get in on this topic of killing. Because there are murderers out there who go by our title. They claim to be dual seed line. Even though scripture says that a murderer cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Even though Revelation reiterates that murderers are outside the kingdom. Even though 
the latter apostles say, whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and that there is no eternal life abiding within them. Well, murderers, just like every other sinner, want to come in and justify their own sin. But what we oftentimes fail to realize is it's not necessarily the act of killing. In fact, very rarely is it the act of killing that is condemned because there is a time and a place for everything. For example, if we go to war, well, killing in self-defense is not the same exact thing as fanyance, which is what the Greek word is. Fanyance and or murder, which Jesus Christ is addressing here, pertains more to the thought, the premeditation of the act of murder, more so than the act itself. So, what is condemned under fanyance, which is transliterated as kill, is thinking, premeditating the murder of any critter. So remember that. They'll come along and say, well, I killed a non-white, as if that makes the act of fanyance, premeditation, any less accountable. Not so. We as Israelites are commanded to not kill anything that is to premeditate their death. And this, of course, does not pertain to animal sacrifices. Sacrifice. Something that you will sacrifice to Yahweh God. Not an animal that you will thrust through and put aside. So Jesus Christ says, follow the law. Follow more specifically the Ten Commandments. Honor your mother and father. And what does the rich young ruler say? Next verse, verse 21. And he said, All these have I kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet thou lackest one thing. Sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. First and foremost, first key. Sell all you have. Every material gain that you have, you need to disperse abroad upon the waters as is commanded in the law. Meaning, it is better to give than to receive. And you would be doing better setting your mind to the things that are gifts in heaven. As opposed to the things that are temporal, fleeting, and considered blessings and or rewards down here. How can I say that? Well, Christ already said that. When this certain rich ruler came and said, you know what, I followed the law my entire life. Keep in mind, this is on the tail end of his parable of the Pharisee and the sinful publican. Christ says, yeah, but you're lacking in one thing. <laughs> and so as a result, so are we. When you think that you're following the law, that you're doing Yahweh God the favor, that you should get a brownie point, for example, for doing what is the whole duty of man, well... You're lacking in another thing, and that is you should sell everything you have. Why? Because our goal is to store up treasure within the coming kingdom. Here rendered, treasure within the kingdom of Yahweh God. But after you do all that, according to the mouth of Yahshua Messiah, after you sell everything you have and you distribute it unto your poor brethren, your poor neighbors, and you obtain for yourself in the process treasure in heaven, Step two is, come, follow me. In order to follow Jesus Christ, you must do that first. 
You must sacrifice all you have to go after that truth. You cannot serve him just a little bit. You cannot serve Yahshua Messiah on Sundays, for example, but then sin the other days of the week. Oh, no. Rather, here is a chain of events. First, sell everything you have. Then, distribute it unto the poor. Then, and only then, will you be able to follow. And when you're able to follow, then you must. Jesus Christ said, unless you pick up your cross and follow after, you're not worthy to be my disciple. So, in order to inherit eternal life, well, you must be one of his disciples, right? But when it's all said and done, you must have this faith. It's one thing to preach it like that Pharisee did and say, hey, I give a tenth of all I have. It's another thing to live it, is it not? Because if this certain rich man was living it, if each and every one of us were truly living the law, like oftentimes we toot our own horn and say we do, we would have already done all of this. You wouldn't have a home, you wouldn't have a car, you wouldn't have all of those things that you consider treasures down here in Satan's kingdom because you would have already sold all those things because you would have been more concerned, like Jesus was, with Yahweh's other children than you would be yourself. And that is why the certain rich young ruler was answered in this manner. Now, don't take it and run with it. Jesus Christ isn't saying that you need to take a vow of being poor. In fact, it is not money itself that is evil, but rather the love of money. And that is why Jesus Christ would rail against certain rich people in certain manners. Boy, this is horrible. I mean, this is really bad sermon. I wonder. And in fact, that's confirmed by the narrative. Next verse. Verse 23. And when he, that rich young ruler, had heard this, he was very sorrowful. Why? For he was very rich. Now, this is why Yahweh God will call the poor, the sinful, to repentance. Because oftentimes the rich people think they can buy their own way into the kingdom. Or if they don't think they can bribe Yahweh God into entrance, they think that somehow or another they can work it out through their own acts, their own cut. They come along, you prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the devil surely is in the word of God. No, pull you aside on trivialities. Well, Lucifer is the king of Babylon, can't be Satan. Isn't that ridiculous? Isn't that the dumbest thing you've ever heard? We follow the prince of peace. Who the hell do you think the king of Babylon is? But Satan. But they find a little justification. Oh, well, that's just a man. Yeah. Why? Because they desire to be little lowercase kings. They desire to be little Pharisees who can judge and say, I know who's clean, I know who is not. The same people who were attacking Yahshua Messiah here were judging him as unclean. They had already said he cast out demons with the power of Beelzebub in the process, committing the unpardonable sin. So do not make the same mistake. Cain went east of Eden. He founded a city named Enoch. 
And outside of one little word, can I, to prove that they made it through the flood, that two of all flesh were truly aboard Noah's Ark, they're blotted out. They're knocked out. Why would Yahweh God waste time even going into the history of people like Judas, the Moabites, or people like Cain, who are the children of the devil? So it makes perfect sense. By that I mean, when people come against you and you decide to blotto them out, make sure it's permanent. Don't burn any bridges that you yourselves have any intention of crossing back over in the future. Only burn the bridges that you yourself never want to cross again. And by that, I mean, well, Luke was smart in what he did. I would have omitted Judas from the beginning, but Judas had a part to play. Judas' part was to betray the Redeemer and to go out much later, according to the other Gospels, and kill himself, finding himself within a kingdom of eternity in damnation. So, knowing most of that, there's a few points that I want you to take away from St. Luke chapter 22. And before we begin chapter 23, which is the second to the last chapter, I might add, I really want to go through a few points. Now, the 11th attempt to kill Jesus was led by Judas. But Judas was already foretold to have betrayed him, according to the Old Testament prophecy. Now, the disciples sat around saying, could it be me? I don't think I'd ever betray Yahshua Messiah. In fact, that was seen in Peter, who said, I'll never deny you. I'll die on the cross with you. But, of course, he denied him three times perfectly, making himself a denier of Yahweh God in the process. This, of course, leads up to the trial and the mockery of Jesus Christ. In the middle of the night, in the still of the night, they bring him here. They mocked him. They smote him. They beat him. They struck him for all the good things that he had did. Why? Short answer, the world's evil. Short answer, this is their hour and the power of darkness. Satan was given dominion during this time. Throughout it all. He didn't, and hadn't been yet. This is why the scribes, the Pharisees, and the chief priests could not lay hands upon him in the temple. This is why Jesus Christ had so much support. But just like Scripture says, once the devil is cast out of somebody, it wanders to and fro, looking for another vessel to possess. The devil always comes back, dear kinsfolk. And that's what's happening right here. Christ rebuked the devil his entire ministry, and the devil, of course, was there. The devil would come along and possess other men to attempt to kill Jesus Christ. And in the end, Christ gave the devil the power of darkness in that one statement. This is your hour, and the power of darkness. So by this, I mean, when you're reading Luke and you see the entire disposition of what Luke is writing change completely and do a 180, well, that's why. Jesus Christ allowed it, just like God allowed Satan to mess with Job. The devil is not a powerful deity in and of himself. By that, I mean the devil and people like his children, Judas, do the will of God, but they don't do it without God's permission. Remember that Amos, the minor prophet, asks, Can there be evil in a city and Yahweh God hath not done it? Yahweh God gets the credit because Yahweh God is omnipotent. And you already know from Isaiah, it pleased Yahweh God to bruise the sun. Satan and Judas were instruments in that. Do you understand the symbology? They're tools of God. They're tools, a polite way of saying fools. Don't follow the devil. Don't follow the Judas goat. Don't look for scapegoatery. Because that's in essence what's happening here. They're laying everything on Jesus Christ as was foretold. Everything. Every sin of men. 
No matter what it was, well, this guy, this horrible Jesus Christ, he uh, restored sight to the blind man. Well, this guy, Yahshua Messiah, and his disciples, they fed the multitude with a few loaves and a few fishes. What a horrible act, right? Why not put them to death? The reason I'm spending so much time on this is because I really want you to understand there truly is no new thing under the sun, and many of us are handcuffed when it comes down to doing good for our own people. Of course, in this latter era where you must do good for everybody, including the whole world, before it begins at home. Well, Christ did good and the world killed him. Do you not think there are still people out there who do only good and the world comes along and kills them because they are too good? <laughs> of course. The way of this world, Satan's kingdom down here is to come along and say only the good die young. But when you really look at who they're referencing in statements like that, Elvis, Michael Jackson, etc., are they good people? No, that's not really true. According to Yahweh's law, he says the only way to prolong our days upon the earth that Yahweh God lays out before us is obedience to his law. And hoary head is a crown of righteousness as well, meaning that God's plan is not for you to die young, not to be like Judas, not to be even like Jesus Christ, who would lay down his life at a mere 33 years old for his beloved kinsfolk. But in order to prolong our days upon the earth, we must be obedient. Was Judas? No. His acts in the end, his fruits and his works were all in accordance with the prophecy of Yahweh God. But Judas' deeds himself were one of betrayal, one of murder, one of extortionism, meaning he would take money to kill, to deliver over particular people. Now, he might have sat there in the temple when it didn't come to pass, and then he finally got frustrated and delivered them over. And this, what you're seeing and we're covering right now, is the fruits of that. Judas betrayal. They found the weak link. So, we as one body must work together. And not only that, we must be aware of the betrayers. And the only way we can be aware is by their fruits. The disciples hadn't fully figured that out yet. I'm sure by now, as Peter's denying, he knew damn well that Judas betrayed him because Judas led the multitude in the still of the night while Peter slept and wasn't being watchful to come against his Redeemer. Peter himself cut the ear off so at this stage, they all knew exactly who Judas Iscariot was. He was that man from Kiriath that we covered in Amos. He was a Moabite. He was a mongrel, for lack of a better term. But he was the traitor. He was the betrayer. And nowhere in the early church fathers and nowhere in the four gospels does it leave open the premise that he was a zealot who wanted to bring in the kingdom by force, yada yada. Nowhere. Luke, as a narrative, says he was wicked, he was devil-possessed, and not only that, the devil's meddling probably led Peter to deny. How can I say that? Well, unlike with Judas, Jesus Christ, Yahshua Messiah, tells Peter straightforwardly, Satan has desired to grind you like wheat, but I have withstood him. Meaning, Jesus Christ withstood it. Peter did not become fully possessed as Judas Iscariot was, but naturally there was probably a consequence of the devil's meddling. He wasn't fully threshed on the threshing floor like wheat, meaning the granules hadn't fallen off. That's the symbology of what Jesus Christ said, but the devil did move against Peter. And the move against Peter was a denial, three times perfectly, in essence, making him an antichrist. But Peter was still usable. Judas was not. Thank you.
Then said they all, Art thou the Son of God? And he said unto them, Ye say that I am. And they said, What need we? Any further witness? For we ourselves have heard this of his own mouth. Scratch all that part. And they said, What need we? Any further witness? Question. For we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. And that ends chapter 22 of St. Luke's narrative. And so, what I want you to take away from the 22nd chapter is the fact that they pretty much had convicted him right then and there. They said, For we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. So, without further ado, let's now begin St. Luke chapter 23. Beginning in verse 1. And the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate. And they began to accuse him. Nah, you know what? I know that this is. <clears throat> and they said all, Art thou the Son of God? And he said unto them, Ye say that I am. And they said, What need we any further witness? Question. For we ourselves have heard this of his own mouth. Now. Thank you for listening to the Covenant People's Ministry broadcast. If you have enjoyed hearing the message of the gospel and would like to be a part of our fellowship or receive quarterly newsletters where you can order Pastor Visser's CD sermons, be sure to write to us at CPM Post Office Box 256, Brooks, Georgia 30205. You can also visit us on the web at covenantpeoplesministry.net where our extensive audio section features numerous broadcasts or you can easily listen to Pastor Visser by Godcast through your mobile audio device. Our sermons and videos are made possible by your tithes and offerings. If you wish to support this ministry, make checks or money orders payable to Covenant People's Ministry. Your donations help us to reach the lost sheep of the house of Israel, wherever they may be found. Remember that Jesus Christ is our all, and is in all that have been renewed in His Holy Spirit. So we hope that you will allow him to lead your life and help to build his church so that when he returns, you will find faith upon this earth. We urge you to be a living example of Christian faith and apply his words to your lives. It has been a pleasure to have you with us, and now we will return to Pastor Visser's Bible study message. Before we begin chapter 23, I do want to remind the listener that at the conclusion of this particular study into the Gospel of St. Luke, we will be releasing a two-part set titled Luke Bloops. And what it is will be outtakes from this particular series on Luke that were either considered too extreme, too needless, or too amateurish for broadcast. As it stands, we're almost to about 80 minutes on that, so we're looking forward to bringing that to you. As it stands, it looks as though we have two chapters left, which means we should conclude in about 30 days. Herod and Pilate were made friends. More than just acquaintances, more than rival rulers. They were able to come along and say, hey, it doesn't matter that you mingled the sacrifices. It doesn't matter because, after all, we're going to kill this man. So Herod says, here you go. Pilate was pleased with him. Pilate wasn't completely innocent in all of this. 
He may have been a little better than the rest of them because at least he had sense enough to say, I have no fault with this man. I find nothing to charge him with. Even going as far as to wash his hands and say, I find no fault with him. But when it was all said and done, the pressure of the world, meaning the will of the people, trumped common sense. And Pilate put him to death anyway. There's a valuable lesson to be learned in all of that. Of course, we're going to bring that forth a little bit more in more detail in a future segment. Jesus is condemned and Barabbas is released in his place. Why is this important? Well, because it proves that oftentimes Israelite men, women, and children would prefer a murderer over a truth teller. Somebody who is forever exiled, according to the mouth of Paul, from ever obtaining entrance into the kingdom. And of course, John confirms that and is a valuable second witness when he says outside the kingdom are the murderers. Christ even gave a third witness to that in the Gospel of St. John chapter 8, where he tells the Jews, you are of your father the devil and will do the lust of your father. One of those lusts, of course, is murder. Pilate is going to release a murderer in the place of Jesus Christ because the people desired a murderer over Jesus Christ. Now, in CI, we see the same exact mentality. We see men who come in and tell on themselves by speaking against other men when they shouldn't even ever utter their name. But they'll come along and they'll do just this. They'll say, hey, why don't you send money to Curtis on death row? But don't send money to CPM. (laughs) Anything to be like the Pharisees of old. What do the Pharisees do? They judge. What do the Sadducees do? They deny angels, they deny Satan, and they also accuse. Just like the accuser of our brethren. That is a name for Satan. Now, Satan has no problem coming along and accusing. Now, the reason the scripture differentiates God being judge and Satan being an accuser is because those are two different positions. If you will, God is the judge. Satan is the accuser. We could say he's the district attorney. And Jesus Christ is an intercessory. That is, we could say, a lawyer who will stand up against Satan and make intercession for you. This is important because everything Satan says to Yahweh God is an accusation. What Pilate puts above the head of Jesus Christ as he hangs on the cross is an accusation, a wrongful accusation not proven in any way, shape, or form. And thus is the case for every accusation. A man can come along and accuse and say, hey, so-and-so's a Jew, just like they did Jesus Christ. They can come along and say, well, he was sowing up discord, wasn't he? Not really. Everywhere Jesus Christ went, he did miracles. And people should have been grateful for that. But instead, it would stir up controversy. And of course, that controversy would get back to the rulers of men and the rulers of the organized religion at the time. They would put aside their differences to put Jesus Christ to death. But the difference between a judge and an accuser is just that. Usually, when you hear men talking of other men, it's all accusations. If you were to stop being so lazy and actually do your homework... You'd find that 98% of what people say about other CI pastors, especially when they claim to be CI themselves, is unsubstantiated. It's no more substantiated than these charges that are leveled against Yahshua Messiah. But their goal is to accuse. That's what's most important to them. 
Initially, the chief priests accused him of sowing discord and coming along and doing all these things. But did Jesus Christ do anything negative? Did he preach rebellion to Caesar? Of course not. He taught very simple. And he said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Amity goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. So it stands to reason, and it's extremely fitting, that Pilate and Herod would have had a form of amity. I say that because Herod was an Edomite and Pilate would have been of the Roman stock. So he would have been a Gentile. And that amity that was placed between the two seeds all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 means just that. Hatred. Variance. To be set at edge. But yet, here's two classes of people that initially had enmity, God-given, I might add, between the two seeds, who were able to put that all aside, if not only for a day, for a while, to put to death an innocent man. Now, Herod couldn't do it, but Herod ruled over Galilee, and Pilate wanted to wash his hands of the whole ordeal, so he refers Jesus Christ to Galilee. In essence, we could say this was the ancient equivalent of an extradition, extraditing him to somebody else who had jurisdiction. Herod, during the third trial of Jesus Christ, couldn't put him to death because, after all, Jesus Christ had done nothing. And two times before, he was technically found innocent. That is, they couldn't come along the first time, according to the Mosaic Law and their faulty perversion or interpretation of it, and say, well, he violated the law of God, so they referred him to Pilate and said, did he violate the laws of men? Pilate came along and said, well, I find no fault in him. I don't really want to deal with this. So he refers him to Herod II. Herod II, being an Edomite, was completely devoid of any spirit. So his quote-unquote men of war, or his fellow band of Herodians, mocked him like the first trial and sent him back to Pilate. Now, what I want you to see is three times he was technically found innocent. But when it comes to the will of the people, this can be a very dangerous thing. Within the land, we hear the terminology democracy, freedom of choice. But in God's word, we don't necessarily see that. And by that, I mean, we do not have the ability as Israelite men to come along and say, well, the majority believes that the Bible is erroneous. That's not how it works. We don't have the ability to come along and say, well, the majority of the church condemns this woman to death because, after all, that would be accusing. And judgment is God's and God's alone. I really have no idea what I'll be preaching next. Although it will most likely be the book of Acts, because as I preached in this same series, the Gospel of St. Luke is part one, and Acts is part two. But now we're getting to verse 27 this Sunday morning, and I want you to focus in on these weeping women, because these were daughters of Jerusalem. Now, they were there, of course, when Jesus Christ is led out of Pilate's court, after his death sentence is pronounced. And so in verse 27, we begin a brand new pilcrow or a paragraph, and it says this, And there followed him a great company of people, and of women, which also bewailed 
and lamented him. Now, these were professional mourners, dear kinsfolk, and I want you to understand that point. They would come along and they would beat upon their breast and they would wail for people that they really didn't even know. And Jesus Christ could foresee their hypocrisy. And so we continue the narrative in verse 28. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Now, why would he say this to them? And why would he respond in such a manner? Because naturally, a man who's being led away to his own death, at least a man who seeks glory, would desire this type of weeping. Well, this, of course, and I've taught this in sermons past, dealing in the Gospel of St. But why would he say it this way? Why would he respond in such a manner? When the natural man, well on his way to his death, would probably want to be bewailed. Well, of course, you may have heard me preach this in sermons past, and that is, Yahshua Messiah, right here, is predicting the destruction of Jerusalem. Therefore, he uses this terminology, daughters of Jerusalem. Don't weep for me, but rather weep for yourself. Many of these women are they who he mentioned before. The children and great-grandchildren and even mothers and fathers who would go on and be part of that siege. When they came against Jerusalem, well, they laid a siege and they starved them out, cut off their water supply. Of course, all this happened in 70 AD. These women would have been partakers of that. But that being a side note, he says, don't weep for me. Because, of course, the second part of that is that he was fulfilling prophecy. And I want you to bear with me because I believe this sermon will make much sense. And why these weeping women must be found within our codified scripture. There followed Jesus Christ a great company of people. Naturally, these would be mostly residents of Jerusalem. They bewailed, they lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. Now stopping right there, I want you to understand what he's quoting and what he's referencing. It ties all the way back to 70 A.D., there's no doubt that this was said many times of the women who were destroyed during that siege, who did see their little ones dashed against the stone, as was foretold. But he says, Behold, the days are coming. So, not only in 70 AD, but also having an end-time meaning. Because, of course, everything comes full circle in Scripture. Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear and the paps which never gave thee suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. Then, Jesus Christ says, this word then connects the prophecy with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Therefore, it doesn't necessarily refer 
to the sixth seal of Revelation that you can read about in chapter 6. Verse 30 confirms that Jesus Christ says, Then shall they say, fall upon us, meaning they want to be just, yeah. Cut. Cut. After all, it was Yahshua Messiah who said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Meaning, as he walked in flesh, he embodied truth. So, when we read in Scripture that we look through the Word of God, like through a glass darkly or a mirror, Jesus Christ did that when he walked. All it merely took was a sinner to look upon Jesus Christ because he was truth to be convicted. But what does man do when they're convicted? They either admit fault, and they repent, and they take steps to walk closer with Yahweh God from that day forward. Or they will make excuses and adapt God's word around their own pet belief. And they'll never admit fault within themselves. And that was why Jesus Christ would teach so adamantly, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is a danger that each and every one of us can fall into. So we need to keep ourselves in check. But nevertheless, verse 44. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And so this sixth hour would have been 12 o'clock to 3 p.m. You've already heard me preach on this. But at the sixth hour, there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Now, this doesn't mean the entire world in Africa. It says over all the earth, or arets, meaning that general area. Everyone round about Jerusalem saw the sky darkened. People in Africa didn't see the sky darkened because they wouldn't have been familiar with who Jesus Christ was. No more than it would be for the same said people in Africa. In the continent of Asia. But nonetheless, the burial of Jesus begins in verse 50. This is a brand new manuscript or a paragraph. Luke says this. And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and a just. The same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. He was of Arimathea, a city of the Judeans, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. Now, Joseph of Arimathea was a just man, and Luke wants you to understand that. And I preach ample sermons proving that Joseph of Arimathea would have been considered a great uncle to Jesus Christ, in that as Jesus Christ was a teenager, those quote-unquote missing years, he traveled with Joseph of Arimathea. It was the same Joseph of Arimathea who would claim the body, the same Joseph of Arimathea who was able to be a mediator, if you will. Truly wise as serpents and harmless as doves, because he was able to go into the office and the temple of the chief priest. But also, he was a Christian. He was like that malefactor to the right side of Jesus Christ as he was crucified, who feared Yahweh God. How can I say that? Well, verse 50 says he was just. Joseph, if you will, was righteous. And he was one of two secret disciples who buried him. Nicodemus, of course, being the other one. And I can make that claim because it's substantiated in John's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Also, John chapter 7, verse 50, and John chapter 19, verse 39. 
But Luke puts in parentheses here in verse 51 of St. Luke chapter 23, the same, same who? Same Joseph of Arimathea didn't consent to the council. Meaning, when he was brought before the chief priests, it was Joseph of Arimathea who said, I find no fault with him. But that was not enough to render Jesus Christ as innocent that day, to set him free. What's that? The testimony of one man. It was fulfillment of prophecy, which is exactly why it happened. But what you need to understand is oftentimes we as people can get enveloped within a blood frenzy. In short, we're like lemmings who follow the masses. And if the masses come along and they say, well, so-and-so's guilty, oftentimes we're the same exact way, quick to judge and rash to pronounce judgment upon the innocent, when all of those positions are reserved for Yahweh God and Yahweh God alone. So, Joseph of Arimathea did not consent to the council. And Luke put that in parenthesis so you'll understand. He was of Arimathea, which was the city of the Judeans. So we could say Joseph was the same exact racial stock as Jesus Christ and Mary and Elizabeth. But he also waited for the kingdom of God. This was the great concern of all the godly men, women, and children in the land of Israel, not the people. But when it's said and done, you need to read Luke chapter 2, verse 23. Also, Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. And Luke chapter 19, verse 11. Now, naturally, we've covered this in a segment before. But that is what defines the clean from the unclean. The righteous from the unrighteous. Waiting for the kingdom of God. Not a rapture. Not for us to accept Jesus Christ, oh no indeed, but rather the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Just as Jesus Christ taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. But what does he do? Joseph of Arimathea, verse 52 says, This man, Joseph, went unto Pilate and begged the body of Jesus Christ. Now this word begged in the Greek is atio. It's the same word for required or desired. Meaning, Joseph of Arimathea, after Jesus Christ gives up the ghost, after he's crucified, after he's mocked, after he's beaten, when he finally says it is finished, and Yahshua commends his soul to the Heavenly Father, he goes into Pilate's court and he asks for the body of Jesus Christ. Now what's his purpose with that? To give it a proper burial. Because the Romans, after all, would allow a particular person to lay on that cross until they were technically skin and bones. Until the fowls of the air came down and pecked all the flesh off the carcasses. But you know, as well as I do, this would be a violation of Israelite law. Of Judean law, we could say. Because it said, cursed be anyone who hangs upon a tree or a cross after sundown. This would be one of the reasons why Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate in secret, in private, most likely alongside Nicodemus, and desires, requests, straightforwardly demands the body of Jesus Christ. It's the third day, and the third day he's walking around. Not a zombie, but a fully living human being. Still in flesh form. But that may be a side note. Because, of course, when you get down and start talking about the differences between the flesh 
and the spirit, you're going to shut the f*** up. Shut up. Because when it comes down to it and you start pointing out the differences between the spirit and the flesh, a lot of men and women out there, they get confused. They don't understand what it is you're talking about. Saying, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. Now notice that verse 8 straightforwardly says, and they remembered His words. Whose words? Jesus' words. When they were reminded by the angel. Verse 9. And returned from the sepulcher and told all these things unto the eleven and to all the rest. Now why is there eleven here? Because Judas had already gone out and committed suicide. I'm hot. I'm not doing this shit right now. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All of them. From beginning to end, Jesus Christ went to Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 all the way up to Malachi. And of course he would use the Septuagint, the LXX, and he would be teaching them exactly what it is that we're teaching you today. That Jesus Christ was that Redeemer. Not only that, Jesus Christ is a man of war. Walked with Yahweh God. Who do you think Melchizedek is? What do you think the Prince of Peace or the Prince of Salem being Melchizedek means? Why would Abraham bow to him? Give him worship? Give him praise? When that was forbidden in the law of God? Why would Jesus Christ be considered a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek if he was not Yahweh God eternal? Well, of course he was. I say that for the edification of the listener. He expounded unto them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now Jesus is going to make himself known to them. And Jesus will always make himself known to you. But what we can learn from this narrative is the fact that oftentimes Christ will appear to you and you don't recognize him right away. Tying perfectly into what it is I'm teaching this Sunday morning. And that is that when we enter into this faith, when we enter into this walk, oftentimes we're on the milk of the word. We don't really understand who Yahweh is. We don't understand who Yahshua Messiah is. But if you stay within the word, if you study the Bible to show yourself approved like those faithful Bereans did, then it will be made clear. Christ can lift the scales off your eyes and make it as clear as a bell what was always written there, what was always hidden in plain sight. But it is contingent on the person. Because the works of the law were nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ, many people say, well, I'm lazy. I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to sit on my hind end and all Israel saved. After all, it doesn't matter how debaucherous I live. It doesn't matter if I'm an adulterer, a miscegenator doesn't matter if I kill, still destroy, etc. But that concept, most assuredly, was never taught by Christ. Christ said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, do you think those are just the New Testament commandments? Well, that's okay if you do. 
frankly, I don't have any issue with that because all the New Testament commandments were taken from the Old. There's no difference between them. Christ made a sacrifice for one and all time. Blotting out all of those things that were held against man. The laborious blood rituals concerning circumcision, concerning sacrifice of animals, concerning many other things along those lines. But it should be common sense that Yahshua Messiah is not amoral. Meaning, it is still wrong to serve other gods, it is still wrong to dishonor your mother and father, bow to graven images, to steal, to bear false witness, to commit adultery, to covet, etc. That should be common sense. Now, there will be men who come along and say, well, Jesus Christ taught the Ten Commandments and just the Ten Commandments. So all these other laws that are written about in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, well, they don't really stand today. But ironically, they fail to understand that the Ten Commandments boils down the entire law, meaning all 650 plus laws that are given, into ten simple ones. Very, very simple to think about it. Seventh law says, thou shalt not adulterate. That encompasses don't sleep with your aunt, don't sleep with your uncle, don't cheat on your wife, don't step outside your race, etc. The tenth commandment says, thou shalt not covet, which encompasses all forms of greed, to be not desirous of the wicked and to not keep up with the Joneses. By this I mean just saying the Ten Commandments is all I follow doesn't mean anything. Because the Ten Commandments encompasses all 666 laws. They're all there together, boiled down and condensed into ten simple ones. And I might add, the fifth one is the only one with promise. The only one. Honor the ways of your mother and father. Have respect for what was taught before, was taught then. Have respect for the Word of God. That's the only command with promise. The first command with promise but the only command with promise in the Ten Commandments. What does that mean? That means that there is a promise attached to it, so that your days may be prolonged in the land that I give you. If you want to live a healthy, happy, long life, then the only way to do that is to stay true, to honor thy mother and father. But here's the question. Who's your father? Is it that flesh man who lives down the road, or is it Yahweh God? Jesus Christ never called God, God once. Hear me, dear kinsfolk. He never once called Yahweh God, but he always called him Father. And as a result, so should each and every one of us. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Let's pick up our study into the Gospel of Luke next time. This is Pastor Visser wishing you and yours great studies. War for Christ. Amen. Covenant People's Ministry. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope that you have enjoyed studying with us. Remember the words that Christ has given, that wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. We hope that you will gather together with us at the online ministry's website, which is covenantpeoplesministry.com and share your Christian testimonies or ask questions and enjoy biblical fellowship. You can also order CDs of Pastor Visser's Bible Studies and enjoy many other Christian resources through the church's website or write to Covenant People's Ministry, Post Office Box 256, Brooks, Georgia, 30205. We thank you for your prayers and offerings and pray that all of you have been touched by these messages and continue to spread the word of the gospel with your friends and family. 
Thanks again, and may the love of Christ abide in you and yours forever and ever. Amen.